Well, it was back in the mid-1500s that my friend Martin Luther wrote that the love of God is our true conversion. The love of God is our true conversion. If you think about what happens to someone when they become a Christian, when they become a follower of Jesus, when they put their faith in Jesus, you might look at the outside and say, oh, well, they changed. They changed their behavior. They stopped doing this. They stopped talking like that. They started doing this. Like They had different attitudes and different perspectives. All that, of course, is true. But fundamentally, conversion is not a change of behavior. It is a change of the heart. And so Luther said what actually happens there is that it's the love of God that's infused in us. And that's what happens to us when we become Christians. We actually love God for the first time. Of course, to love God means we esteem God or we value God as God. We treat Him like God or we have a passion for God that we're captivated by His beauty and we pursue Him because of His glory. The problem is many days, maybe most days, we face the temptation to love others or other things as much as or even more than we love God. So we have this love for God, but then we also have this love for, and then we could fill in the blank. And that's a kind of a personal thing where you have to think about what are the things that I love and chase more than God or that I love more than God. And so we gather and some of us are struggling this morning. We're struggling with love of money. Some of us are struggling with love of appearance, how we look, or love of approval, what others think of us, or love of achievement, Right, where we find our value in our grades or in our position or love of entertainment, love of pleasure. And there's a warning this morning for us in 2 Kings 17 not to mix up our loves. And we actually get this warning through an interesting development where the Lord actually uh, sent certain people from the Assyrian Empire to live in the land that He had just taken Israel out of. So we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 24. What's happened last week, though, is that the Assyrian Empire has come to town and it's, they've deported the majority of the population of the northern kingdom. And so we pick it up in verse 24, and there we read this. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. The settlers took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. Okay, so let's pause, and I'll just show you this right here. You can see it, visualize it. Let's show them the map. Let's see if we can do it, Ben. I feel good about it. Here we go. Assyrian Empire. So you have all, all kinds of people from all over that were taken and transplanted down here in this area of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, right? And so that's, that's the circumstance. So the, the, the regular inhabitants, the um, Israelites have been taken out of here and put in other places, and then they brought other people and transplanted them there. By the way, that was like the um, official policy of the Assyrian Empire. It helped stabilize their empire, meaning you didn't have rebellions. When you mix up the population like that, you basically cause everybody to be unsettled, and then they just kind of get used to the new life under the Assyrian Empire. So that's what they did. So took the Israelites out, put these new people in. Let's get back here to verse 25. Something interesting happens. <clears throat> when they first lived there, they did not fear the Lord. And you'll notice in your Bible that Lord is all caps, which means it's a reference to the covenant name of God in distinction from all the Canaanite gods and goddesses and all that. So they did not fear Yahweh, the Lord, 
So the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now that might sound a little extreme, but you will see that God's doing something in this story. So he actually sends lions. Lions were actually well-known and documented in Israel up into uh, the late 19th century. So, in fact, in the Bible, there's like five Hebrew words for lions, all kinds of different nuances to which kind of lion are you talking about? Like a skinny, lazy lion or like a, a beefy, mean lion? or what? I mean, that's a, okay, not exactly. But there's a lot of terms because there were a lot of lions. And so these people moved here. They moved there, and it was like ghost in the darkness, like there's lions attacking them, right? And so they're, they're feeling this, uh, you know, this oppression. And so in their ancient Near Eastern worldview, they thought, oh, it's the god of this land. Like, the, you know, in their, in their idea, um, ancient Near Eastern cultural perspective, gods and goddesses had like, you know, territories that they were sovereign over. And when two nations did war, their, their gods went to war. So they're thinking, oh, we've moved to a new place. We obviously have not made the god or goddess here happy. And thus they sent the lions. Now the Lord did send the lions, but there's more to it. Watch verse 26. The settlers said to the king of Assyria, the nations that you have deported and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the requirements of the god of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them that are killing them because the people don't know the requirements of the God of the land. They're like, ah, we didn't get the instructions. So they, they write back to the king of Assyria. They're like, this is not working out so well. Uh, you may have heard we're being devoured by lions. So we need you to send, we need, we need help. Well, verse 27, then the king of Assyria issued a command, send back one of the priests you deported. Have him go and live there so he can teach them the requirements of the God of the land. Now, this is remarkable. The king of Assyria is like, okay, yeah, I can see that. We messed up. He says, so <clears throat> we have a bunch of these priests that we took out of the, the northern kingdom. Just ship one of those guys back and have him teach them about the God of the land. Now, again, this is pagan thinking. They're not thinking like, hey, this is a missionary opportunity. But when you, when you read between the lines, you understand, wow, actually, this is a great opportunity where the Lord has brought the nations to this land where his people were, and even though the majority of the people are gone, he's going to send a priest back to teach them about who he is with like the stamp of approval of the Assyrian government. Like, this is amazing. Verse 28, so one of the priests they had deported came and lived in Bethel, and he began to teach them how they should fear Yahweh or fear the Lord. If you just pause right there with me, what a remarkable moment. You see, this is actually the design of God for his people. God intends, right? God intends for his people to instruct the nations in true worship. And so here, at least in theory, we read about this lion attack and we're like, what's going on? Oh, the Lord is paving the way to bring these people or to bring the gospel, the good news about who he is, to bring that message to all these nations who have now been assembled in this random town, namely, or the area of Samaria. So he says, they're going to send the priest, they send the priest, the priest is going to teach them to fear me. Now that's, again, in line with the trajectory of the Old Testament, where God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he does so so that they can be a witness to the nations about how great he is. God's people are meant to instruct the nations in true worship. Why the lion attacks? Because often people are not ready to hear from God unless they are facing severe difficulty. It's just interesting, isn't it? Tragedies are often when idols are proven to be powerless. So the lions are attacking and you're praying to your Canaanite god or goddess and they got nothing. So you're like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe there's something more. 
Maybe there's, there's something, there's a different God, a greater God. And frankly, for us, it's the same way. We're often, we need reminders that the idols that we're tempted to worship, the things that we are tempted to love more than God, that those things are powerless to give us meaning and satisfaction. So we're going through a hard time, and we just, you know what, we go, we go on a shopping spree. We're just going to buy these things. They'll make, me, they'll make me feel better. And they might make you feel better for a moment, but the fact is they cannot provide meaning. They're powerless to do that. Or you might find your refuge in food, or you might find your refuge in pleasure, or you might find your refuge in work, or whatever it is, right? All these different places we go. And sometimes the Lord sends us difficult circumstances just to remind us that He is the only one who can meet our needs. But also it's interesting, I think, just to think about the fact that sometimes God brings the mission field to us. Like maybe we're this priest, right? And we're just in a situation where there's an opportunity for us to bring the gospel to somebody because they've been brought to us. It's interesting, when we were moving to New Jersey over 10 years ago, uh, reading up on the state, New Jersey is the most diversely populated state in the United States as far as different ethnic backgrounds. And it's just kind of a cool thing. that It's just like there's a lot of different nations here in New Jersey, and therefore there's a lot of different opportunities for us to bring the gospel to these folks. So you might ask, okay, Lord, who have you brought into my world? Who's moved into my neighborhood? Who's in, who's in my class? Who's on my sports team? Who's in the cubicle next to me at work? Right? Who, who is it that, is, that has been brought into my world where it's an, now an opportunity for me to instruct them or teach them about the Lord or to show them how good God is? You know, there's a relationship there where we get to know people, and there's also a message where there's certain times when we communicate. You know, this is who God is according to the Bible, and this is the wonderful truth that we know because of God's Word. And so all that to say, the lions attack. Uh, the people that have moved there, they're like, whoa, 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 we got a problem. This king of Assyria says, send one of these priests back. Now listen, we stop at verse 28, and we're like, awesome. He's going to go and, pre- and teach them to fe- literally, in verse 28, Uh, teach them how they should fear the Lord. Wait a minute. Do we remember the priests that were in the northern kingdom that were taken out? These are not like, I mean, you know, these, these are not like stellar priests. They weren't top of the class in seminary, okay? These, these were not guys who were leading the people of the northern kingdom in worship of God exclusively. So if you're, if you've been paying attention, you know, wait a minute, this is not as good as it sounds. Watch verse 29. But the people of each nation, the priest, priest arrives, does his thing. But the people of each nation were still making their own gods in the cities where they lived and putting them in the shrines of the high places that the people of Samaria had made. Now, listen, new people, same problem. They're, they're making their gods and they're putting them up in the shrines that the Israelites had left behind. So they're worshiping these Canaanite gods or goddesses. They just swapped out the idol. All right, switch out that one with that one. We're good to go. We already got the temple built and the high place there and all the rest. Verse 30. The men, and then we get some specifics, okay? We don't know the details about all these, but I'll just go over them with you. The men of Babylon made Sukkot Benot. The men of Kuth made uh, Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So <clears throat> what are we supposed to read out of that? Just so we're clear, those are not real gods. Those are false gods. And the, the problem of false worship gets 
you know, it's perpetuated. But in addition to worshiping their home gods that they now have imported, verse 32, they feared the Lord and really feared there should be like put in, in quotation marks. They feared the Lord, but they also worshiped their own gods according to the practice of the nations from which they had been deported. So there's a mixing here, right? The, the priest comes, he says, this is who Yahweh is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're like, oh, interesting. Uh, this is my God. Oh, this is one of, one of the weird ones. Let's do one of the weird ones. Uh, you know, Nergal. This is my God, Nergal. And uh, we can worship Yahweh and Nergal together. And so they mix. They, they actually blend. The technical term for this is called syncretism, where you put together these two different, you know, ideas and worship. So they say, oh, we'll just blend them together. So they're like, yeah, we worship Yahweh and Nergal and whoever else. Verse 34, they are still observing the former practices to this day, the day of the writing of 2 Kings. None of them fear the Lord truly or observe the statutes and ordinances, the law and commandments that the Lord had commanded the descendants of Jacob whom he had given the name Israel. The point is, they said they worshiped Yahweh. They even had a priest of Yahweh, but they had mixed worship where they were not, they were not exclusively worshiping Yahweh. They were not exclusively worshiping the true God. And so they had mixed up their worship. And here's the, the really the, the main idea of this section. It's that mixed worship, whatever it is, isn't true worship. Mixed worship isn't true worship. And so the authors there, they even highlight that the law, the, the, the good instruction that was given by God was given to, to the patriarchs in the sense that it was a fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it was given through Moses later. But that law was given to the descendants of Jacob, whom he had renamed Israel. And Israel means, the name Israel means God fights. Like God fights for us. And so that's the, that's the idea there. So there's kind of this honoring of Israel's history and this reminder that God is still at work. And yet here, these transplanted people, they haven't gotten the message. So it's mixed worship. They go on to summarize, though, the nature of God's special relationship to his people and even how that could be for others. The Lord made a covenant with Jacob's descendants and commanded them, do not fear other gods, do not bow in worship to them, do not serve them, do not sacrifice to them. This is like commandment one, basic. Don't worship other gods. And yet this priest from the northern kingdom let him do that. He basically authorized their worshiping of other gods. Instead, verse 36, fear the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm. You are to bow down to him. You are to sacrifice to him. I mean, remember what God has done, even though it wasn't done to those people. Look at his power on display. There's an evangelistic right, idea here. Verse 37, you are to be careful Always to observe the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandments he wrote for you. Do not fear other gods. Are we getting it yet? And then verse 38. Do not forget the covenant that I have made with you. Do not fear other gods, but fear the Lord your God, and he will rescue you from all your enemies. Who's he talking to? Well, the fact is that probably the first readers of 2 Kings were in exile. And they were living among the nations. And guess what they were going to be tempted to do living in exile among the nations? Mix the worship. We have our God, Yahweh, but you have Nergal here. Okay, let's, let's mix these gods together. Maybe he will bless my family. Maybe he, will, maybe he will cause our career to be successful. Verse 40, however, these nations would not listen, just like the Israelites. 
but continued observing their formal, former practices. They feared the Lord, quote-unquote, but they also served their idols. Still today, their children and grandchildren continue doing as their ancestors did. Mixed worship isn't true worship. Mixed worship isn't true worship. And our battle today, right, is that we are tempted to love Jesus and love other things just as much or even more than we love Jesus. You know, many years ago, there was a Western missionary, I think it's from the United States, who went to Japan, and he was doing revivals and sharing the gospel with people in Japan. Of course, the, the primary religion in Japan uh, was Buddhism, and so, you know, he's preaching the gospel to these people, and people are responding. Like, a lot of people are like, yes, I want to put my faith in Jesus, and I'm going to worship Jesus. And so he was, like, blown away at the numbers of the response. Like, it was big time. But then he, he didn't see a lot of, you know, transformation uh, in the follow-up, and so Finally, he started to go around and visit these people who had put their faith in Jesus, and he went into their living rooms, and in their living rooms, they have these shelves, and on the shelves are idols of their Buddhist gods and goddesses, and what they had done was they had just basically added Jesus to their collection. Like, yeah, we worship all these gods, and you came and told us about Jesus, and we'll just add him to the mix. Sure, absolutely. But isn't that sometimes just what we do? Where we think, oh, it's the money that's going to make the difference. It's this relationship that's going to make the difference. If it's the possession, if I just had this, this education, or whatever it is. And you know what? Jesus, sure, I'll add Jesus to the mix. Sure, I can throw Jesus a Sunday morning, right? I, I can mix him in there. But when God is not our chief love, when he does not have unrivaled status in our hearts, that's mixed worship. And it is a recipe for spiritual disaster. And so here, it, this kind of bizarre scene where these transplants are there, and yet they're, they're taught about the Lord, and yet they don't really get it. They don't observe His commands. Why? Because they don't fear Him exclusively. There's a warning in it for us that's saying, listen, be careful about tolerating mixed worship. So just think about it this way. Which gods are on the shelf in your living room? Which gods are the ones that you're turning to for, again, satisfaction or contentment to find purpose or to find solace in difficult times? True worship means that God is the only one on the shelf. Now, let's flesh that out a little bit. If God is our chief love and our primary allegiance, then that means on the one hand, there are certain things we refuse to love. We say no to because we love God. These are, these are things that are evil that are wrong, that are inherently wicked. And God reveals that to us in his word where we say, oh yeah, everybody's doing that, but I will not do that because God has called me not to do that. And because I love God and he's an un, it's unrivaled in my heart, I choose him above all else. Because I love God, I will say no to this. And that's a big part of following Jesus, of being a worshiper of the Lord is yes, he is my primary love, my chief love. So I say no to these things. But then also, if God is our primary love, that means that we, that we love good things in their place. Now work with me here. It's really easy to turn a good gift of God into a false God, where God gifts us with money. He gifts us with possessions. He gifts us with home and families and uh, you know, uh, natural gifting and all these you know, circumstances, whatever. And so we have all these gifts from God, but then we can easily take those gifts and elevate them to the place of being God. And so to, to leave God on the shelf alone means... We acknowledge them as gifts of God, we thank Him for them, and we use them for His purposes, right? That prevents us from putting them, you know, up on the shelf with God where we now treat them as a God. 
And so you kind of, you read this story and there's a, a sober warning here that just says, listen, the mixed worship deal, it is not going to end in a good place. And don't believe the lie where Satan's like, yeah, you can have a little Jesus and something else. Mixed worship isn't true worship. There is a, there is a, a way in which exclusively worshiping God, right, brings him glory. And so we say no to the rest and we say yes to him. And that doesn't mean we devalue our families, or we devalue our careers, or we devalue the communities we live in. On the contrary, we can actually honor them rightly as gifts of God, not as gods in and of themselves. It's sad here because the area of, it's like the town or the area was almost like cursed. Like the Israelites were there, they didn't do it, they worshiped false gods. God took them out, brought in new people, gave them instruction, and yet it didn't take, and they worshiped their false gods they brought in, and it was all kind of the same thing happening again. You almost wonder, would, would Samaria ever get it? Would the area ever get it? And here's the coolest thing. You just got to love this. So, so we're in 2 Kings 17. If you fast forward 700 years from 2 Kings 17, the greater son of David, the true king over all Israel, Jesus the Messiah, wanders into guess where? Samaria. In John chapter 4, he rolls into Samaria. Now, by this time, Jews and Samaritans are really at odds. They're, they're huge uh, enemies of one another. And uh, actually, even in part of, partially because of this chapter, that there was you know, this explanation of their idolatry. And so uh, it wasn't pure worship. And so there was, there was conflict there. And it got, you know, sin took over and it was really bad. So it's like Jews wouldn't even go to Samaria. And so the fact that Jesus, as a Jew, went to Samaria with his followers was very shocking. But then he goes, and of course, he goes to the well in town, and uh, Jacob's well, and he's <clears throat> talking to this woman who's there. And you know the story. If you don't, John 4, it's a great read. Go, you know, have this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. It's powerful. But guess what the conversation ends up being about? True worship. I mean, the lady says, uh, you know, I know you, got, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem, and we say we worship here. What do you think about true worship? <laughs> Could you imagine asking Jesus that question, right? And Jesus, you know, he kind of, I don't know if he rolled up his sleeves or what, but he's like, okay, let's talk, right? He's like, listen, you, you don't understand. It's not about where you worship. It's about who you worship. And he said the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so he's explaining this to her. And then she kind of figures out this guy is not just a guy. Like, maybe there's more to it. So then she actually says, you know, <clears throat> I know, like, the Messiah is coming one day. What do you think about that? And Jesus says, and this is a direct quote from John chapter 4, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. You want to talk about worship? Let's talk about who I am as the Messiah. And so God's mercy is poured out where? In Samaria. You fast forward after that, Jesus dies and rises from the dead, and then the apostles are going around ministering, and Philip goes to, guess where? Samaria. He's driven there because of persecution. They didn't choose it. It wasn't like their strategy, but God sent him there. And guess what? He's preaching the gospel, and the Samaritans, what do they do? They believed. It's almost like God had been preparing these people for 700 plus years to finally hear the good news that he alone is worthy of their worship and that he died for their sins and rose from the dead and so they should put their faith in him. And so now they're ready to believe. And so Peter and John show up and they're like, what is going on? All the Samaritans are believing. Like, what should we do? Like, baptize them. Let's go. 
I mean, that's Acts 8. And so we see God pouring out his grace on this particular area. And I think there's a lesson in here for us in this. If God's grace can be poured out in Samaria to people who have struggled in so many ways with idolatry, then guess what? His grace is available for us. And it's not a grace that says, you know what? It doesn't matter. Just do whatever you want. It's a grace that says, I've rescued you from that mixed worship. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, and I can help you worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But you got to come with me. There's no other way. You know, the Jews in the first century would write about the Samaritans, and they called them proselytes of the lion. It was like an insult, like because, you know, this threat of death by lions was the only reason they turned to the Lord, which they didn't even really turn to the Lord. So they called them proselytes of the lion. But I I wonder, I just wonder if God wasn't doing something in that, that he was preparing the ground for people to finally be ready to turn to him. And then later, they actually did become proselytes of the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus says, I'm him. And, And they believed, and they were forgiven, and they were changed. So what about you? Where are you struggling this morning with mixed worship? Or maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, you know what? God has sent lions to my neighborhood. Like there's, there's some hard stuff going on in my life right now. And maybe what God is doing is he is trying to help you understand that all those false gods that we love and run to, that we're tempted to chase, right? That they cannot provide the meaning and satisfaction that he can. And he doesn't ever promise that it'll be easy. He doesn't promise to just take away all your problems in the blink of an eye. But he does promise that whoever puts their faith in him will be forgiven. And he promises to lead us in this new life, not of mixed worship, but of exclusive worship of him alone. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, just know that from wherever you come from, whatever your background is, you might think, oh, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Listen, God wants everything to do with you but he's not willing to share the stage. He's not willing to just be one God on your shelf. And so maybe God sent you lions, and this is the day where you need to repent of your sin and to put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Of course, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, there's a challenge. Don't tolerate mixed worship, which means asking that question, what is it that I love or that is in competition in my heart with Christ? Don't don't tolerate... Uh, hypocrisy. Don't tolerate divided interest, right? And ask the question, how can I then think about money in a way that honors God or pleasure or entertainment or whatever it is? How can I think about that and live in such a way that I bring God honor and glory rather than treating it as a God? Mixed worship isn't true worship. We learn when we read the rest of the Bible that the Father seeks those who will actually worship Him in spirit and in truth, Him alone. And that happens by faith in the Son. The Father seeks those who will worship Him in spirit and truth by faith in the Son. It's Father and Spirit and Son together. And that alone is who we worship. Years ago, Pat Walsh took me to my first Yankees game at Yankee Stadium. Uh, You familiar with it? It's over there. Anyway, uh, Pat's a big Yankees fan. And um, here's the deal. I've never seen Pat wear a Red Sox hat. You know what I mean? Like, it'd be weird. It would have been really weird if we went to that Yankees game and he was wearing a Yankees shirt 
with a Red Sox hat. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Like, it's a, that, that's an actual mental illness. Like, they would actually say, listen, you need to go to the doctor because these two things, they don't go together. They don't mix. And I use that as a humorous example to make this point. Is that us? Are we walking around with a t-shirt that says Jesus, but a hat that says money is what I really love? Or career is what I really love? Or, again, pleasure, or alcohol, drugs, or food, or whatever. This is what I really love. Approval of others. This is what I'm really after, right? And whatever, whatever's going on here, right, the point is this. Mixed worship isn't true worship. And you need to ask the question, okay, Lord, if I'm going to worship you alone, what does that look like in my life? How do I say no to these other gods? How do I think about them rightly? And if you're going to wear the shirt, wear the hat. Right? There's a call here to purity in our worship. That it's God alone on our shelf. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that we love. If you're convicted, you need to know this. That it is Jesus who died on the cross for our failures to worship him exclusively. He died for our idolatry. So that we could sing these songs that we've been singing this morning. Lord, have mercy. He does have mercy on us. And Jesus rose from the dead, not just so that we could be forgiven, but so that we could be transformed and changed. And he leads us in a way of life, away from mixed worship, and in a way that says, I exclusively worship God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because of that, I live this way. And it's faith in him that drives my decision-making. Maybe the Lord's got you in a spot this morning where you need to prayerfully consider how do you stop using mixed worship, right? And how do you worship him alone? And when we think about that, don't despair when we fail, but we look to Jesus who provides that forgiveness and who gives us that leadership in his spirit to say, follow me as, as we walk in, in ways that honor him. So let's pray together and we'll ask Jesus to help us say no to mixed worship and worship him alone. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. Even as we read a, a tough passage, Lord, with um, really this failure of these transplants to honor you alone, we are soberly reminded that this is also our struggle, that we struggle with mixed worship. So, Lord, help us. Lead us in repentance. Lead us to, to the place where we're ready to call our sin what it is, to, to actually name our idols, the things that we love as much as or more than you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to value you above all else. And Lord, we thank you for your good gifts, but help us not to turn them into gods. Lord, help us to say no to temptation and to reject those things that we should not love because they are wrong and wicked. Lord, as we gather together, we know there are so many different circumstances where lions are in the neighborhood. And Lord, you've sent them for a reason, to turn us to you. And so I pray that you would do that work in us now, that this would be a passage that results in spiritual transformation in our lives because we're willing to confess these failures, this, these, this battle with idolatry, and we're able to turn to you by faith. Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus, there is forgiveness available to anyone, even the Samaritans, and that means even to us. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are that Lion of Judah, the Messiah promised, who is the Savior not just of the Jewish nation, but the Savior of the world. 
And we thank you that your grace extends even to us. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen.